You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's passage comes from Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and it pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because his oath and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for our church and is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Kyle Hackman. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to see so many visitors here. This is a pretty dark passage, but let's pray, and we're going to ask that God might speak clearly to us through this, his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, your church here in Toronto now, turn our attention to your word, and we ask that you would send your spirit so that these words wouldn't be to us ordinary words, but would be words with power, and that by this, your word, we might be relieved from the guilt that weighs us down and might find great joy and delight in Jesus who came. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning, you know, incredibly dark passage. If you know anything about the history of Western art, this, this image has been painted quite a bit. Caravaggio, maybe most famously. A dark passage, and it comes at the heels of a dark time in Jesus' ministry. He's been rejected last week, as Pastor Lyndon preached, by his family and, and by his entire hometown. And now we find that John the one who was to pave the way for Jesus, is not only imprisoned, but he's executed, and not only is he executed through some sort of ordinary means, but in the most grotesque and mocking way, his head is served up on a platter at a drunken dance party. Now, what is is this story about, and why is it left in the Bible? Well, I'm convinced the story is about the power of the conscience. And the story you just read is about two men who find themselves in prison. Not one, two men who find themselves in prison. One ends up executed, but set free. And the other is left imprisoned and tortured. This morning what I want to look at is this passage. I want to ask what this passage teaches us about our conscience. We don't talk a lot about the conscience in the church, but it's incredibly critical to our understanding of what it means to follow after Christ and to turn from our sins. It's hard to know exactly how to define what the conscience is. Jiminy Cricket famously said in Pinocchio, the conscience is that small voice you hear in your head that you don't want to listen to. It's not a bad definition, especially for Disney. 
Uh, some have said that conscience is something like the prosecuting attorney that lives inside of you and evaluates all your decisions, uh, demanding that the judge render a verdict. Most associate the conscience with those guilty feelings that come and accompany certain behaviors. It's interesting. Uh, when it relates to guilt, we are okay with feelings of guilt, but when it relates to innocence, no one says, well, judge, I feel innocent. You know, I have these overwhelmed f feelings of innocent, therefore I must be innocent. Uh, nonetheless, we associate our conscience with guilty feelings. Our conscience can be trained, it can be sharpened, but it can also be dulled and ignored and untuned and even silenced in our lives. But in a very real sense, our conscience won't go away, and it's always there. And this morning what I want to ask, and move somewhat quickly, is what do we do with the conscience? How do we think about the conscience, at least according to the world that the Bible presents to us and the world that the Bible longs for us to live in? And I want to look at at least three things that we're going to explore about the conscience. I want to first look at the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience, the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience, then the cost of maintaining a clear conscience, and finally I want to look at the hope of finding a cleansed conscience. So let's first begin by looking at the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience. Where do we see this in this passage? Well, you might say, I don't see the word conscience anywhere in this passage. Where are you getting this? And where I'm getting this from is the way the passage starts in these first two verses. It starts with Herod, this man named Herod, who calls himself something of a ruler, the Tetrarch, and he is absolutely paranoid. Now, it might not seem as obvious to you at first, but he's convinced that Jesus, he hears word of what Jesus is doing, and he's convinced this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And you might think, well, this is just traditional Jewish teaching, people are raised from the dead, and you'd have some truth to that. But the simple fact is he thinks this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, come to haunt him. This was more of a Greek approach to the way spirits or souls sort of uh, resided in our world. They would come back from the dead to torture and torment and haunt people. And here we have Herod, paranoid. What I think you're seeing is Herod, ensla his enslavement to his conscience. Now, let me just briefly tell you who Herod was. We've already learned about one Herod in the Bible. Unfortunately, this is one of these cases where there's not a lot of creativity with names in, in this time in history. Uh, the other Herod we learned was called Herod the Great. He was called the Great for his building campaigns, but he wasn't great by any stretch of the word. Uh, he's most notorious for slaughtering all the boys, the young boys, uh, in, in uh, Israel around this particular time. And Herod the Great is, is a king that was put in place by Rome. And he ends up having ten children by a variety of different wives, and upon his death, his kingdom is separated into fourths. That's why this Herod, which I might call throughout the sermon Herod Antipas, or Herod Tetrarch, uh, is called a Tetrarch, one of four. He ruled over the region of Galilee and the region of Perea, which is now where Jesus is, uh, most of Jesus' ministry is taking place, and so that's why he's hearing of Jesus. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about this guy, though. Now, we know a lot about him from a Jewish historian named Josephus and from other parts of the Bible. But Herod went on a trip to Rome to sort of reaffirm his allegiance to Rome and continue as a puppet king to Rome. And while he was there with the other four rulers that were to reign over uh, what is, uh, you know, around the region of Israel, Josephus tells us that he fell in love with the wife of his brother Philip. And they had an affair. And in the midst of the fair, they both decided to divorce their spouses and to marry one another. And this was an incredible scandal. 
an incredible scandal, not just because of the adultery, not just because of the affair, not just because of the divorce, but also because the Bible explicitly prohibited marriages in, in this type of relationship. A sister-in-law marriage while the brother-in-law is still alive is something the Bible forbids. It's interesting, the, power, the Bible cared a lot about these power dynamics that our society's eyes are opened very clearly to lately. Uh, long, long before, you know, sort of society became passionate about it, they thought there's something unhealthy about the way these relationships work out and go into marriage. And so this was explicitly prohibited in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus, Leviticus 20. And so this created a national scandal. And our passage begins with, John, uh, with, with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, absolutely paranoid that John has been raised from the dead and he's out to seek revenge. And what you're seeing is a man who's enslaved and imprisoned because he's ignored his convicted conscience. This is the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience. So verse 1 and 2, we see his paranoia. Then verse 3 through 12, we get something of a flashback. So we, we have the current state of Herod. He hears of Jesus. He's paranoid. Then verse 3 through 12 gives us a flashback as to why he has gotten this way. Look, look at all that happens to him. You know, first he commits the sin of adultery. Then he commits the sin of divorce. Then he commits the sin of incest, according to the biblical standards. And all through this time, his heart is hardened he hears his conscience saying, you ought not do that. And he continues to do it anyway. And rather than God just turning him over, letting him continue to live this way, God sends a prophet, John the Baptist, whose duty and job it was to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And John probably believed it was his duty to call out to the king what, the, the, the heinousness of this sin so that he could awaken the king's conscience. And maybe, John thought, Herod would come to his senses, turn from his sins, and this would be the means by which the Messiah would rise to prominence and glory. God in his kindness doesn't turn his back on Herod despite him constantly ignoring his conscience. And how then does Herod respond? Well, John's prophetic response, as we are told elsewhere in Mark's gospel, he's quite interested in listening to John preach, but because of the drama it's causing in his house with Herodias, his wife, he sends John to jail. And eventually, his wife slash former sister-in-law, and his niece, who's sensually dancing at a drunken party, hatch a plan to murder John the Baptist. What does God do to a man who hardens his conscience this way, who, who ignores a convicted conscience? Well, God still gives him another chance. He sends Jesus, and Herod hears of the great works of Jesus. Time is not too late. He could turn from his foolishness, turn from his sins, Acknowledge the wrong with which she treated John the Baptist, but what does he do? Well, he ignores his convicted conscience again, and he assumes that Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead out to torment him. This is the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience. It will leave you restless. The great theologian of the 17th century, John Calvin, wrote it this way, because of, a bad, uh, because, of his bad, because bad consciences are wont to tremble and hesitate and turn with every wind, Herod readily believed what he dreaded. With such blind terrors, God frequently alarms wicked men so that after all the pains they take to harden themselves and to escape agitation, their internal executioner gives them no rest but chastises them with severity." This is the danger of ignoring a convicted conscience. Your conscience becomes something of an internal executioner, as Calvin says, that gives you no rest. You're left troubled and restless. I don't know if anyone else has started this Netflix uh, series on the Murdoch uh, murders, this prominent South Carolina family. 
Uh, it starts off uh, with this family with generations uh, of lawyers. They're sort of the patriarchs of this small town in South Carolina. And it starts out like any other Netflix documentary. There's a crime that happens, a heinous crime, and evil starts to compound on evil. And you ask yourself, why am I watching this? But what's shocking about this particular documentary, unlike most murder mystery documentaries, which you know I find myself watching quite a bit of, is that all of a sudden, it's not just a son or a father or a grandfather that's caught up in the evil. All of a sudden, you find out that the whole family is caught up in this cycle of evil. And in fact, the whole family is working one with another to train one another to ignore the feelings their consciences are given. You find that they're colluding to dull the sensation of their consciousness, and it shouldn't be, surprised, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that a family committing such crimes and training one another to dull their consciences find themselves doing what? Abusing substances. No surprise. This is always the case. It's always the case that as the conscience screams at you, what do you have to do? You numb it down with medication, with substances which make you not hear the voice of your ex internal executioner screaming out that you ought not to have rest. This is the danger of a convicted conscience. You'll find yourself troubled, restless. The great Cambridge theologian of the 16th century, William Perkins, said the conscience provides for us the beginning of our final judgment. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say there's a great danger for you right here, right now, for ignoring your conscience. No matter how small of an, of an action you may have committed that your conscience is crying out against you or how big it might be, your conscience is something of a prosecuting attorney which resides inside of you, in which nothing is hidden, including your thoughts. And maybe some here today are burdened and weighed down by conscience, or at least you were at one point. You could hardly function, and you know something of what it feels like to enjoy substance, to dial down the pains of conscience. But now you hardly hear the voice of your conscience. That prosecuting attorney sounds so distant and so far away. Here's the great danger in fighting your consciences. Are you listening closely? is that you can win. You can fight your conscience hard enough and you can win for a while. But the Bible says there's a day of final judgment coming where you will stand before your, your creator and that conscience will serve as your prosecuting attorney, reminding you, reminding you of the ways in which you were called out. You, you knew not to do certain things and you knew to do certain things and you were restless and yet you ignored it and suppressed it. This is the danger of fighting a conscience. You just might win, but you'll end up with a troubled and restless mind. Next, let's talk about the, con the, the cost of maintaining a clear conscience. So there's one person in this passage who has a free, who's, who's imprisoned and yet free. He has an absolutely clear con conscience, and this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is this prophet called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And as I stated, he calls out the sins of Herod, tells him of how heinous the adultery is and uh, the incest. He, he speaks clearly to the people that this is against God's law and it should not be condoned. And he felt by conscience he must do this. And as his conscience was inflamed, he saw from God's word that his conscience was right and accurate, that these are things that God is displeased with. And if his duty is to prepare the way for the Messiah then he must call this out. And yet, as he calls this out, what ends up happening? He ends up in prison. He ends up beheaded. He could have been careful. He could have been nice. But he wanted to die with a clear conscience. What is the cost of a clear conscience? Well, it feels like it costs your life. Does not? I mean, think about it. Herod could have had a clear conscience. 
But what would it have cost him? All along the way, he could have stopped this downward trajectory uh, of evil and vile and sin. But what would it have cost him? Would it cost him something of a, a sensual affair as he lost his relationship, uh, the, the, the pleasure of this affair as he tried to cut it off? And even after the marriage, as he cuts it off, realizing it's evil, would it cost him a relationship? Even in this drunken stupor, as he makes this sinful vow, he just shouldn't have compounded sin upon sin by, by following through on this vow, but what would it cost him? Would it cost him his reputation in front of his friends? And to listen to the voice of John the Baptist, what would it have cost him? Would it cost him a measure of autonomy, saying there's an authority outside of me that I must submit to? This, this, this was scary to Herod. The cost felt too high. He felt like if he were to do these things, it would cost a portion of his life, and it wasn't worth it for him, but it was for John. And that's why John dies with a clear conscience. Listen, I can't be the only one in here who knows of a time when there was a hard thing you had to say or a hard thing you had to do or something that you had to abstain from doing or a time when you had to tell a group of people that you think they are in the wrong and you wrestled through and thought through the consequences of you standing out against the crowd, you calling something out and you decided after looking at the pros and the cons, after looking at the damage it will cost to your career, to your relationships, to your family, you said, you know what, it's just not worth it. And you go against conscience because the voice of people and the voice of reputation and the voice of comfort and the voice of wealth is louder than the voice of conscience and you drown out the voice of conscience and you never from that day forward ever have a clear conscience. You do whatever you can to go back and try to right the wrong and your conscience still bothers you because you feel that you cause more harm than you can ever begin to undo. I can't be the only one who knows some stories like this, who's experienced this personally in my life. What is the cost of a clear conscience? I could go on and on, but the cost of a clear conscience is it feels like death. It feels like you're giving away part of your life. And John the Baptist shows us what true disciples do. They give part of their life. Did Jesus not say, come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, I will, I will give you rest. But did he not say, you must take up your cross and follow me? A portion of you will feel like dying as you come to him. And this is the cost of a clear conscience. It will cost you life. You have to learn to deny yourself, take up your cross. It will feel like death. Now thirdly, what if, what if we would love a clear conscience, but it's too late? What if we want desperately a clear conscience? We wish we could turn back time in a time machine, make a different decision, say the right thing at the right time, stand against the crowd at the right time, not participate in that thing we participated in. Is there any hope for finding a cleansed conscience? Well, even in Herod's drunken state, in his drunken sense, even he knows that a bad oath ought not be fulfilled. Even he knows there's a way in which he can turn from the wrongs that he has done. There's hope that he can find a cleansed conscience. He knows it, but he turns away from it. What do we do if we want a cleansed conscience? If a clear conscience is no longer an option because we failed, how do we get a cleansed conscience? And this passage tells us all about the hope of finding a cleansed conscience, but in a very subtle way. You know, if you read a lot of commentators, they're puzzled by this passage because they would say in all of Matthew's gospel, this is the only passage that's not directly about Jesus. And I spent a lot of time thinking through, that's an interesting point, how do you, you know, sermons are to lift high the name of Jesus, to celebrate the work of Jesus, how, how does this passage relate to Jesus? But it's interesting, if you look at how the passage ends, this passage is all about Jesus. Because this is about a transition of John's ministry, who is paving the way for Jesus, and his ending becomes a preview 
of how Jesus' ending is going to take place. But what happens with John's disciples? They go to Jesus and they tell Jesus after they bury John. John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. Remember John's mission was to pave the way for Jesus, to be a faithful witness, to make a path. And is that not exactly what he's doing here? In John's death, as he dies with this clear conscience, he paves the way forward for the people of God and the Messiah to bring salvation into this world. The one that is unjustly put to death takes on the wrongs of others. You see, remember what John said when he first saw Jesus? What did he call him? He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of their world. Maybe I could say it this way. If you have a a guilty conscience, if you have a convicted conscience that you've ignored, if your conscience right now is dull, you've ignored it for far too long, there was a sin that used to make you feel so disgusting now that you don't even notice anymore when you commit it, well, what can you do to get rid of it? Well, you can try to do good works. You could say, maybe if I could just be martyred like John, then I could find a clear conscience, you know? Maybe if I could do enough good works, pile up enough good works, then somehow this will cleanse my conscience. But let me tell you, no matter how many good works you do, it might clean your conscience moving forward, but it can never clean your conscience going backwards. You will always deeply regret that you're the type of person who did the thing you did, I promise you. So the other option is you can seek a diversion when you have a convicted conscience. You can be busy with work, not think about what your conscience tells you to reflect on. You can find substances that numb and distract you from the voice of your conscience. And you know what's terrifying? This is a pretty good path. It'll work. Your conscience won't be cleansed, but at least it'll be quieted. The other thing you can do is explain away your guilt. This seems to be quite popular in our culture. Maybe hire an expensive therapist who will tell you what you're doing is not actually wrong, that what you did is, is just something of a primitive evolutionary feeling that, that sort of malformed uh, in somewhere along the evolutionary process, and that's why you feel this way. But you ought not feel this way. You ought to move on. The, the shame and the guilt you feel, these, these things aren't real. Or maybe you could do what I'm an expert at, which is when you go against conscience and you know you've done wrong and you know the Lord is displeased, you wallow around in your guilt and you feel bad for a while, thinking somehow walking around with my head down all dire will somehow atone for and cleanse my conscience and fill, you know, fix the problems that my sins have committed. Somehow my dark disposition is going to be exactly what I need to find a cleansed conscience on the other side. It just doesn't work like that. Our conscience, like a prosecuting attorney, continues to say to the judge, death, death, blood must be spilt. This one has gone against conscience. And God in his mercy, provided his people a a, a system in the Old Testament, a sacrificial system in the temple, where when they heard the conscience screaming that out, they could go and lay their sins, and the blood of an animal could at least tune down the noise of the conscience, cleanse for a time the sound of the conscience as it screamed for blood, as it screamed for the death penalty, but Jesus is here being the Lamb of God. John is pointing right to him. His death, his final martyrdom, and his final death is going to be different. Because when he dies, his blood will serve as the means for which all consciences can be cleansed for those who look and turn and trust in him. Human blood like ours, yet his blood is sinless. And it's human blood like ours, but yet this isn't an ordinary man. This is the God-man who can make a sacrifice of infinite value. John's sacrifice, at the best, could have atoned for his own sins in the best of worlds. But it wouldn't be enough to atone for all the sins of God's people. And yet here we are, God and man, shedding blood. And his blood becomes the means by which all of our consciences can be clean. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cows sprinkled 
on those who are defiled consecrated them and provided ritual purity. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? Jesus' death was to provide a sacrifice so your conscience can be relieved of the weight that sin has been giving to you. All sins, past, present, even future, irrevocably paid for in the death of Jesus Christ. Some of you today need to hear this for the first time. You need to trust that Jesus Christ died for you, that his death was what was necessary for that prosecuting attorney's cry to be silenced, for you to find a cleansed conscience. Today, in this moment, the burden of your conscience is weighing you down. You need to hear that Jesus has lifted this. Stop living anxious and restless lives like Herod. Come to your senses, and it's going to look like admitting your guilt, but finding this incredible peace as in a mysterious way somehow Christ's blood covers and washes over you and your conscience is set free. But my guess is most people in this room, you've heard this message before, but this morning, like so many other Sunday mornings you come through these doors, you're not enjoying it. You've forgotten that Christ's death is for you. And this morning, what I would challenge you to do is you need to reapply an old teaching. You need to, when you see Christ's death, when your conscience, one of the things that happens, maybe I'll say it this way, one of the things that happens when you start following Jesus is your conscience actually gets sharper and stronger. And if you're being properly discipled under God's word especially, it gets more in tuned. And you start hearing things that are off pitch more clearly. You start seeing transgressions more obviously, and the conscience starts to weigh you down more and more and more because you start realizing your problem with guilt is so much deeper than you imagined. And also at the exact same time, as you understand the work of Jesus, you actually seek to make restitution of the wrongs you've done. You've thought, what can I do to undo the wrongs I've done in the past? Not to somehow fix the problem I've created, but because I know I'm forgiven in Christ, because I know my conscience is liberated, I now want to be the means by which new creation is ushered in where all the wrongs start to be made right. How do I participate in this? And as you get in, in this experience, you find yourself seeing your sin more clearly. You try to fix the mess of your sin, and you find you're in a deeper mess than you realize. And all of a sudden, you start losing the joy. You've forgotten what belongs to you because your guilt is greater, and your desire to make restitution grows, and you feel like a failure over and over again. What I'm saying is this morning, you must go back, and you must remember, Christ died for you. Blood deserved to be spilt. Your conscience isn't lying when it screams out to the judge. There must be blood for actions like this. But Christ's blood has been spilt, and it is a blood of so much greater value than your own, and it covers all of your sins, and now you can stand before our Lord with a cleansed conscience. Friends, there's no need to sit under a condemned conscience any longer. Trust the work of Christ and be set free. John's whole ministry was pointing to this work of Christ, this moment when Christ would give his life. And as Christ gives his life, it was not only that Christ would have a clear conscience, but that a cleansed conscience would be available to all God's people. He was the Lamb of God who came to give his life for the sins of the world. Maybe I'll conclude this way. A clear conscience is good and it's worth striving for, but a cleansed conscience is better. This morning, trust Christ's blood, trust his sacrifice. It will undo all the guilt you ought to bear and it will give you a cleansed conscience to stand before your creator one day on that last judgment. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you work through your word. And we give you thanks that you've made us as human beings with this part of our, our body, part of our minds, part of our soul, 
called a conscience, which calls us at when we do wrong. And though, Father, we've grown into the habit of ignoring this conscience, we give you great thanks that you don't give up on us, that you've given us your word. And every Sunday we hear it over and over again, and we have a chance to turn and, and to deal with the weight of sin, the burden that our consciences pile up against us. This morning, Father, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, who doesn't know the power of that blood, of what it means to say his death was on my behalf, it was what I deserved, and knows what it feels like for the, con the weight of the conscience to be lifted off their shoulders, would you allow that to happen this morning by your Spirit's power, we pray. And for the many of us here who come in week in and week out, and we've become joyless and we've forgotten about the great power of the blood of Christ, and we've assumed that it's our duty now to clear our conscience. It's our duty to, to do whatever we can to live with a clear conscience. Would you remind us of the great power that comes with the cleansed conscience because of the blood of Christ? And when we understand that, would you set us free to be the type of people who regularly turn from our sins and work to fix the wrongs we've done in this world? Make us into this type of people. We beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.